This morning we come to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 as our text, which consists of the quotation and explanation and application of three Old Testament texts. Peter, having likened Christ to a living stone in verse 4, and then having likened believers to living stones who are joined to Christ, the living stone, and who are part of the living temple of which Christ is the cornerstone, he now, in the verses that follow our text for today, cites Old Testament support for what he has just told us. Three texts, two from Isaiah and one from the Psalms, depicting Christ in the manner that he has just described him in verses 4 and 5, and thereby showing us where these thoughts derive their source that he has presented to us in verses 4 and 5. And in doing so, he extends what he has said in these preceding verses and gives additional truths that apply to every reader, yea, every hearer of this portion of God's word. And so today, Christ, the cornerstone, who brings honor if embraced, but judgment if rejected. And I will address this in three parts. Number one, God's word unites to the cornerstone. Number two, faith rewards us with the cornerstone. And number three, unbelief brings judgment by the cornerstone. The first one, God's word unites us to the cornerstone, is really a summary of what has gone before and an attempt to put our text for today into its context, particularly since it's been a couple of weeks since we were here. So let's show how Peter emphasizes the word of God in its central place and how God uses that to unite people to Jesus Christ. It is the word of God, he tells us, which is the instrument of the new birth. That takes us back to chapter 1 and verse 23, where he says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. God uses his word, empowered by his Holy Spirit, as the instrument which takes sinners and joins them in living union with Jesus Christ. But the Word of God is not only the instrument of spiritual birth, but it is also the instrument of sanctification. And that takes us into chapter 2 and verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word. Why? That you may grow thereby. And so Peter is emphasizing the importance of the Bible, God's Word. Number one, that's the instrument which the Holy Spirit uses to bring sinners to salvation, to bring sinners into living union with Jesus Christ. Number two, that's the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify God's people and to make us more holy, to make us more like Jesus Christ. And furthermore, it is this Word of God that reveals Christ and makes Him known initially to the unbeliever and throughout the lifetime of the believer. And that's the force of verses 4 and 5. Coming to Him as to a living stone, 
rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up back to the milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, the analogy changes, no longer like babes longing for their mother's milk, but now like a building being constructed. But, of course, it is the same instrument that is being used, the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, coming to Him... He says in the beginning of verse 4. And that is coming to him, as we've already seen, through the word of God. How do we come to Christ? We come to him through the word of God. Coming to him by faith. How is it that the word of God has this wonderful effect in the lives of fallen sons of Adam? Well, it is when by faith we lay hold of God's word. Then we are enabled to come to Christ. To come to the one that God has appointed as the Savior of mankind. And furthermore, we need to understand that this coming to Christ is a continual coming. Coming to him as to a living stone. Not having come to him, past tense, over and done with. Not you came to him at one time, and that was all. But writing now to believers, he says, you are continually coming to him. It is an ongoing matter that continues throughout our lifetime. What Peter is saying is something like this. The question is not, have you believed? The question is, are you believing? The question is not, have you come, but are you coming? The question is not, have you prayed? Have you prayed the prayer, and therefore everything is all right forever after? The question is not, have you prayed, but are you praying? The question is not, have you decided, but are you deciding? The question is not, have you worshipped, but are you worshipping? The question is not, have you come, but are you coming? If you have truly come... And, of course, all of those other things are true, too. If you are now believing, it's because you did once believe. If you are now coming, it is because you did once come. If you are now praying on a regular basis, it is because there was a time when the Holy Spirit of God enabled you to truly pray to God the Father for the first time in your life. If you are currently deciding for Christ day by day, and indeed that's what it is, we decide, we make decisions for Him all the time, don't we? It is because there was a time when the Holy Spirit brought you to make a decision for Christ. If you are now worshiping Christ as an ongoing matter, there certainly was a time in your life when you came to worship Him truly in spirit and in truth for the very first time. But there is no such thing as doing any of these things once and for all and then not continuing. Everyone who has been brought into these things by the Spirit of God continues in these things by the Spirit of God. That's the point. And so many times I think people are deceived because all the emphasis is placed upon one thing 
that you may or may not have done at one time in the past. In fact, sometimes evangelists will say something like this. Now, if you have ever done this before, prayed the prayer, uh, you don't need to do it again. If you've ever done this before, but if you've never done this before, you need to do it today. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you have ever done this before, you are doing it today. You are continually repenting. You are continually casting yourself upon Christ. You are continually coming to Him and coming to Him and coming to Him and coming to Him. And that's the way that we are built up as a holy temple unto the Lord God. This is how we are both established and maintained as a living stone in God's new temple. We believe in Him In order to become a part of that temple, we continue to believe in him in order to be built up in the ongoing growth of that temple. And Peter, therefore, having now alluded to this stone in verse 4, and having expanded upon this stone concept in verse 5, in verse 4 he called Christ a living stone, a living stone, a very strange figure, But it startles us and makes us think about it and understand the truth of it. So Christ is a living stone and believers are also living stones. And having dropped these concepts into the middle of his epistle now, he goes to the Old Testament and picks out the three Old Testament texts that talk about Christ the Messiah as a stone. And he brings them together to show us where this concept comes from and to apply it further to our understanding. Three Old Testament texts in verses 6 through 8. The first one is Isaiah 28:16, And let me read that for you as it's found in Isaiah. Isaiah 28:16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So there's the first text, Isaiah 28:16. And by the way, that text is quoted again by Paul in Romans 9:33 when he says, maybe I'll start at verse 30, what shall we say then the gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, actually, in that text, Romans 9.33, Paul draws together the two texts from Isaiah. The first one in Isaiah 28.16 that I just quoted. And the second one in Isaiah 14 that we'll look at in a moment. He pulls the two together there to explain why Israel, though they were the chosen people of God, nevertheless many of them have not come into the blessings of salvation because they did not believe. These blessings are only secured by faith. And this cornerstone is also a stumbling stone. And for those who believe, it becomes the cornerstone of the new temple, of which all of us are living stones in that same temple. But for those who reject, it becomes a stumbling stone. 
and a rock of offense. It becomes an instrument of judgment. The very same stone has two different effects upon people depending upon whether they believe or do not believe. This is the text also in Isaiah 28.16 that Paul is referring to in Ephesians 2.20 when he says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The second text that Peter will cite in verse 7, the first one is in verse 6, and the second one is in verse 7, is Psalm 118.22. Psalm 118.22, and that says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The psalmist goes on to say, This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. That text is quoted several times in the New Testament. It's quoted by Christ in all three of the synoptics, and it's all in reference to the same occasion, so I will just read the one in Matthew 21:42. But this is the, the telling of the parable of the vine dresser. It's sometimes called the wicked vine dressers. A man who leased out his vineyard to tenants and went away and then sent them for the fruit of the vineyard. And instead they beat the messengers, they abused the messengers. Finally he sent his son and they killed him in order to take the vineyard for themselves. And Christ asked them, the religious leaders of his day, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do to people who act this way? And they indicate that he will treat them very severely. And Jesus said that's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, the vineyard is Israel, and the owner is God, and he sent his messengers, the prophets, to you over and over again, and you've rejected them. And finally, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, and you rejected him. And what's going to happen? He's going to take the kingdom from you and give it to another nation who will bear the fruit thereof. And he said, have you never read in the scriptures, Matthew 21, 42, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And he quotes this text, Psalm 118, verse 22. Peter also quotes that text in Acts chapter 4, when he is preaching to the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he is charging them with the death of Christ, with rejecting God's Messiah. And he says in Acts 4.11, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He applies the text. He not only quotes the text, but he applies the text. The chief, the, the stone which was rejected by the builders, says, says the psalmist. Peter says, by you builders. He lays it to their charge. He said, you are the very ones of which this scripture speaks. You are the very ones who have rejected God's stone, the chief cornerstone. You rejected him, but God has made him the chief cornerstone. And then finally, the text in Isaiah 8.14 says, He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. To both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A stone of stumbling 
a rock of offense. And that's the one that Paul combines together with Isaiah 28:16 in Romans 9:33 that we read a moment ago. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and the rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him will not be put to shame. All right, there's the texts from the Old Testament that Peter quotes in his epistle. And what is he telling us? First of all, that faith rewards us with the cornerstone. That is, those who believe on Jesus Christ, those who have faith in Him, are rewarded. They are rewarded with Him. And they are rewarded with honor, as we shall see. He makes it clear that this is the cornerstone promised in Scripture when he quotes in back to 1 Peter 2.6, Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. That's the way he introduces his quotation. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. In the graphe is the Greek word, the writings. And that is a word that is, that is used in the New Testament for the Old Testament Scriptures. It is used 51 times in the New Testament, and every time that it is used, it is in reference to the Old Testament canon, the Hebrew canon, the 39 books of our Old Testament, the same, same books that we recognize as the Old Testament scriptures today, were the same ones recognized by the Jews in Christ's day, in Paul's day, in Peter's day. And every time this word, graphe, is used, it is in reference to these one or more of these 39 books of the Old Testament. It is never used in reference to the apocryphal books. It is never used in reference to any other writing except one of the 39 books of the Old Testament. It is very much a technical term for the Scriptures, the Word of God. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. In the writings. This, of course, certifies that what Peter is going to say is absolutely true. Because if Scripture says it, it is true. What I have told you about the cornerstone, about the living stone, is certified by the Scripture. And therefore, you can be certain that this is true. And so it is, first of all, a cornerstone promised in Scripture. It is secondly the cornerstone prepared by God himself. And now he quotes that first text in Isaiah 28, 16. You have it before you in 1 Peter 2, 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. God says, I lay in Zion. God says, I establish my work. God says, I am bringing about my purposes. God says, I am bringing about my planned redemption. God says, I am building the spiritual temple, which is the real house of worship. I'm laying the cornerstone in Zion for this spiritual temple. I'm laying it in the place where the temple of stone has been, the Old Testament temple, but I've got something bigger in mind. I am establishing a spiritual temple, and I'm laying the cornerstone in Zion. The cornerstone, as we've already seen, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. But what is a cornerstone? 
In construction, the cornerstone was a carefully prepared stone which went in the corner of the foundation. In those days, they could not dig trenches and pour concrete and put metal rebars into the trench to make a foundation. And so they would dig out a trench and make it as deep as necessary, depending upon the size of the building they had in mind, and make it smooth, and then they would lay massive stones in the trench, and the stones would be the foundation. But the most important stone in the foundation was the cornerstone, and that stone had to be virtually perfect, completely square, a a perfect, all the angles had to be exactly perfect. Why? Because all the measurements of the building were going to be taken off of that cornerstone. They would, from that stone, they would measure the angle that goes out this way. And from that stone, they would measure the angle that goes out this way. And from that stone, they would measure the uh, surface that goes up this way. And it would be continually measured off of that stone to be sure that everything was going up perpendicular, was straight. That stone became the stone by which everything else was measured. Every, Every stone in the building related to the cornerstone. What a fitting picture for the temple of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Everything in this house of God relates to Jesus Christ. Everything draws its meaning from Jesus Christ. Everything gets its direction and guidance from Jesus Christ. Behold, said God, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, elect. Elect, that is chosen, chosen for this purpose, carefully chosen for this purpose, approved for this purpose. This is the one stone that can accomplish the purpose. Elect, precious, a very important word because Peter is going to build upon that in a moment. Precious, which means valuable, costly, and therefore honored. Those things that are valuable and costly, we honor them in various ways. We admire them. We protect them. We honor them. Well, Jesus Christ is precious. He is more valuable than anything else. He's more costly than anything else. To erect this building, this church of God, Jesus Christ had to lay down his life. What a costly cornerstone. What a precious cornerstone. And what a highly honored cornerstone. And everyone who believes in him gives him the honor that is due unto his name. And there is a reward related to this stone which is secured by faith. He says, he who believes on him, in the last part of the quotation of verse 6, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And he goes on to say in verse 7, therefore to you who believe he is precious. He who believes on him, Christ, will by no means be put to shame. He who believes in Christ is going to be rewarded with a lasting position and inheritance which will never ultimately disappoint or bring embarrassment, or humiliation, or shame. In fact, it'll bring just the opposite. 
No disappointment, no deception to those who place their faith in Christ. Now, sometimes there will be some of these things temporarily in this life because of the world's hostility. But what he's saying is those who place their faith in Christ are going to receive the same honor that the cornerstone or similar honor to what the cornerstone receives, even though initially they may receive the same rejection that the cornerstone received. When you trust in Christ, you put your lot in with him and you are going to receive what he gets. So initially there's going to be rejection by the world, hostility, opposition, scorn. And that would tend to bring shame and embarrassment if you put too much stock in what people think and say, particularly those who don't know the Lord. But don't let that bother you. Just remember what happened to Christ after he was rejected. Remember how he was raised again from the dead in honor. Remember how he ascended back to heaven in glory. Remember how he was seated upon the throne of heaven at the right hand of God and given a name which is above every name. Remember how he now receives the highest honor and glory. He is indeed precious. God chose him for this position. Men rejected him, all part of God's plan, but God has honored him ultimately. Now those who believe in him, though you too may be rejected and scorned and persecuted, and many of Peter's readers were being persecuted at this very time, Though that is true, you can be certain, I can, I can make certified to you, I can guarantee to you that those who believe in him will not be put to shame. You will someday receive great honor and glory right alongside him. You are going to be identified with him in his glory if you are willing to be identified with him in his humiliation. Know that. Therefore, to you who believe, or rather, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, and the, the verses, uh, the, the words I just quoted, of course, were Peter's quotation from Isaiah. Now he adds his own comment to doubly certify it, to reinforce it. Therefore, because this is true, because this was said in the book of Isaiah years ago, because this is the word of God, it is written. Therefore, verse 7, to you who believe, he is precious. Therefore, to you who believe. And the literal Greek here is you, you who continue believing. Therefore, to you, I mean you. Doubly emphasized. Therefore, to you. Dear sir, therefore to you, dear lady, therefore to you, young man, young woman, therefore to whoever you are, if you continue believing, and there's that emphasis upon continuation again, it's found in the construction of the Greek in the tense, therefore you who continue believing, he is precious. Now here's where we get into a variation translation. Our translator has, there is no verb here, by the way. And it doesn't even tell us, you can see in, in, in my translation, the word both he and is is in italics. That's not in the original. 
Therefore, to you who believe, precious. To you who believe, precious. And that rendering assumes that the Christian's verdict, the believer's verdict, is the same as God's. God chose him. To God he is elect. To God he is precious. To God he is honored. And therefore those who come to believe in him have the same verdict that God has. To us he is chosen. To us he is precious. And that certainly is true. But that probably is not exactly what Peter is saying. He's talking about the honor that is received by those who believe in him. Therefore, to you, you who are believing, preciousness. What does that mean? Well, that's picking up what he said about those who believe in him will not be put to shame. He who believes in him, this this phrase, by the way, is closer to the statement in verse 7 and provides, therefore, a more fitting antecedent to what Peter has in mind here. He who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, based upon this statement, please know to you, you who are believing, preciousness. In other words, honor. God has made him precious, that is honorable, costly, valuable, and honorable. Know, therefore, that for those of you who believe, you too will receive honor. The opposite of being put to shame. Those who believe in him will not be ashamed, will not be embarrassed, far from it. They will be honored. They will receive reward. They will receive glory and honor right along with him. That's the reward for those who believe in him. That's the reward for those who are willing to be identified with him in his rejection, in the hostility of men, in the suffering in the persecution that Christ received and that followers of Jesus Christ will also receive. But make no mistake about it, there is greater glory, there is greater reward that far exceeds whatever humiliation and suffering you might occur, might, might receive. In that day, the rejection will seem so small, the honor will seem so great. Know that. This is a promise. Hold on to that. There's a 7th century Latin hymn, which we're going to sing at the close of the service today. Believers in Jesus Christ have been singing this same hymn now in various languages for 13, 1400 years. Translated into English by John Neal, Christ has made the sure foundation, Christ the head and cornerstone, chosen of the Lord and precious, Binding all the church in one, holy Zion's help forever and her confidence alone. And it goes on through and picks up on the text that we're looking at now. But there's another aspect that we have to deal with, a much sadder one. We are delighted with the truth that faith rewards rewards those who trust in the cornerstone. But now we also have to deal with the opposite side. And that is that unbelief brings judgment, condemnation by that very same cornerstone. Because he goes on in the last part of verse 7 to say, But to those who are disobedient, here's the contrast, 
On the one hand, to you who are believing, there is honor. But on the other hand, to those who are disobedient, that is unbelieving, and now he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and, verse 8, Isaiah 8, 14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word. And so this is the other truth. Unbelief brings judgment by the cornerstone. And what we are reminded of again is that the response of men to this stone divides all men into two categories. Ultimately, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Believers in Jesus Christ and unbelievers. And those are the only two divisions that really matter, the only division that really matters, the only two categories that really matter. Matters not whether you're rich or poor, and matters not whether you're black or white, matters not whether you are educated or uneducated, it matters very little about any of these things. Matters not what country you are from, what language you speak, these things matter very little, virtually nothing in the light of eternity. The only thing that really matters is what is your relationship to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone? Have you and are you continuing to believe in him? That's the ultimate reality. Unbelief brings judgment by the cornerstone. Because, you see, rejecting Christ does not remove him from your life. A lot of people think so. But the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They thought they could get rid of him, but they can't. That's the idea. The workers sent up from the quarry a stone, and the builders examined it and said, we don't want it. And they rolled it over the cliff into the valley below. Get rid of that. We'll go on and build the building the way we want to. But the the stone which the builders rejected, God made the chief cornerstone. God did it. You think by ignoring Christ. You think by ignoring the Bible. You think by ignoring religion. You think by ignoring those pesky Christians who try to talk to you about the Lord. That you can get this whole issue out of your life. Doesn't matter to me. It doesn't make any difference to me. It doesn't doesn't touch my reality. How many times have you talked to somebody about the Lord and maybe you mentioned heaven and hell and they said, oh, I don't believe in hell, as if that's the end of the subject. If I don't believe in it, no use talking about it. It doesn't exist. I banished it by, by my decision. I banished it from reality. It doesn't exist. So why should I consider that? Because, dear friend, you deciding you don't believe in it doesn't get rid of it. You're not God. Ultimately, that's the whole issue. We, we like to think of ourselves as little gods who determine our own lives, our own destinies, the, the affairs of our life. We're going we're gonna to construct our life the way we want it. The things we don't want it, in it, we're going to banish. The things we want in it, we're going to invite in. And don't you dare come in here disturbing my life and trying to bring into my 
consciousness things that I that I don't want in my life. I have banished this out of my life. Only in your thoughts, but not in reality. Sure, people can construct an alternative reality that is made up of their thoughts that does not correspond with true reality. We generally call that, well, in the milder forms, we call it imagination or fantasy. If it goes on too much, we call that insanity. Constructing an alternate universe, an alternate reality out of your thoughts, which really have no bearing upon reality. It's just the way you construct things. It's the way you want things to be. It's the way you're going to make life in your mind. But it's not reality. That's insanity. And dear friend, trying to banish Jesus Christ from your life is insanity. Trying to dismiss ultimate realities, judgment and and ultimate destinations like heaven and hell, trying to dismiss those things from your thinking is insanity because rejecting them doesn't get rid of them. Rejecting the stone doesn't get rid of the stone. It's interesting that when Christ quoted Psalm 118.22 in the Gospels, he applied it to the Jewish religious leaders. You are the builders who rejected the stone. When... Peter quotes that text in Acts 4.11. He likewise applies it to the Sanhedrin. He's preaching to the Sanhedrin. So again, he applies it to the Jewish religious leaders. You are the builders who rejected the stone. When Paul uses that text in Romans 9.33, he applies it to all of the nation of Israel. All of Israel are the builders who rejected the stone. When Peter quotes the text... Before us in 1 Peter 2, 6-8, he applies it to all unbelievers. All of you are the builders who rejected the stone. All who unbelieve, all who disbelieve, are the builders who rejected the stone. But God made him the cornerstone in spite of what you did. God has the last word. God has exalted this stone to the chief cornerstone position. God has given Jesus the highest place of honor. And therefore, you cannot avoid this stone and its determining impact. Rejecting Jesus Christ has serious consequences. When you reject him, who is the chief cornerstone, he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's almost as if he has two different kinds of stone. To those who believe, he's the cornerstone in that great temple of God of which you are a living stone. You're part of that. But if you reject him, he becomes a different kind of stone. And actually, Peter uses a different word. The word stone in verse 7 is a Greek word that means a construction stone. The word stone in verse 8, followed by the word rock in verse 8, is a different kind of stone. This is a petra, a petra, a boulder. A cliff. This is a different kind of stone. The kind of stone that if it falls on you, will crush you. It's a kind of stone that people stumble on. And it's a kind of stone, if it falls on them, it crushes them and destroys them. And what Peter is telling us is this. God has 
put Jesus Christ across the path of everyone's life. You can't avoid him. And he will be to you either the cornerstone in a glorious temple, and you will share the honor that he has as the chief cornerstone, or he will become to you a stumbling stone that will bring destruction, ultimate destruction. Jesus is the touchstone of every man and woman's destiny. And you can't avoid him. God's placed him across your path. Now, the last phrase of verse 8 is a startling one. He says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word. And then this phrase, To which they also were appointed. Where did that come from? just kind of rises up and grabs you. A startling conclusion. There's no question, whatever this phrase means, there's no question that Peter is talking about eternal condemnation. The New American Standard Bible translates it, and to this doom they were appointed. To this doom they were appointed. The question, however, is, is Peter saying they were appointed to unbelief, And stumbling, in other words, is Peter saying that God appointed all those who disbelieved to stumbling and destruction? Or is he saying that God appointed men to to disbelief? Were they appointed to unbelief? Or were those who refused to believe appointed to eternal destruction? I have my own Uh, answer to that question, but I'm not going to offer it. I'm just going to leave it hanging for you to think about. But either way, it's a sobering truth. Because no matter which way it goes, it makes it clear that those who don't believe in Christ receive eternal condemnation. The same stone, the same one, if embraced brings eternal life and great joy and great honor. But if rejected, will bring ultimately condemnation and eternal doom. I can say, in reference to that last question, no matter what Peter is saying, it does not shut the door to salvation because all of these verbs, like the ones before it, are present tense verbs. And he says, therefore, those who are presently not believing, those who are presently stumbling, those who are presently disobeying the word, were appointed to that. Without any necessary requirement that this continue. If that's where you are right now, you don't have to continue in that. In fact, it very well may be that God has brought this stark reality to your attention to shake you out of lethargy and to cause you to cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. Notice what Peter says in verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you, As evildoers, that's the very ones who 
have rejected the cornerstone and reject those who follow him, reject the living stones. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, the very ones who disbelieved and even persecuted God's people and rejected the stone may become believers in the end. God may save them. You don't have to continue in unbelief. Notice what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. There's that same concept of disobedience. Some do not obey the word. They are presently not believing. They are presently stumbling. They are presently disobeying the word. But notice, without the word, they may, without the word, be won by the conduct of their wives. They may be saved. They may be saved. They will be if they will come to Christ, if they will believe. So this does not shut the door of salvation to anyone who is living, to anyone who is hearing these words. In fact, it ought to be a cause to humble us, to shake us, to alarm us, to cause us to realize that the most important thing in our life is that we be on the cornerstone. Nothing else matters ultimately. But this text does promise condemnation to all who persist in unbelief to the end. And therefore, it says, come to the cornerstone in faith. Embrace Him. Believe in Him. Give Him the honor that is due unto Him that you might receive the eternal blessings which He bestows. Shall we pray? Almighty God, You who are the ruler of the universe, You who carry out Your plans perfectly, wisely, unerringly, and graciously. We acknowledge, O Lord, that You have given Your Son as a wonderful cornerstone to all who trust in Him with great reward to follow. We acknowledge, O Lord, that He is a stumbling stone to all who refuse to believe in Him with great destruction and condemnation to follow. Therefore, O Lord, we plead that by the working of Your Spirit You will cause every heart, everyone listening to this message today to turn from sin, to turn from self, to turn from ruling their own lives and demanding their own way, to turn from dishonoring the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords and has the rightful rule over all lives, to turn from self and to turn to him and by faith to receive the blessings which he and he alone bestows. Grant this petition we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.